Well, it's been four years, count them, four years, we have gone each fall into this series. We have methodically, carefully worked our way through the book of Revelation verse by verse. Uh, We've seen the sudden disappearance of all the Christians from the earth that has set off a chain reaction of ecological catastrophes that we can't hardly imagine, earthquakes, famine, uh, a war to say the least. We've seen a man of peace they'll start to kind of reel that back in. And this guy is loved. He is loved by the vast majority of the world. He seems like a man of peace, but he's not. He is a Messiah-like figure. He is loved. He is worshipped. He is seen as the world's governments as a guy that can unite them together to quit fighting. And for a time, he's able to achieve that. He's able to unite the world's religion, uh, religions together with another guy as his kind of sidekick. And this guy is this spiritual leader, always dynamic. What a speaker. Everybody goes to hear this guy speak. He is the best speaker in town. So these two guys team up. That's what it looks like on earth. From the vantage point of heaven, though, We've seen God send an ever-increasing level of devastation. From heaven's viewpoint, it looks like seven trumpets that have been blown by angels. It looks like seven, or sorry, seven seals that have been broken, seven trumpets that have been blown, seven bowls of wrath that have been dumped out. That is the picture. But on earth, it is the great tribulation, this horrible time of seven years, the world cities. At this point, at the end of seven years, they lie in total devastation. The world's economy is in shambles. The environment ruined. It's dark. It's cold physically. The capital city and its economic systems are destroyed. Literally smoke rising from an ash heap. The great city catastrophe has overtaken it. And yet, the Antichrist and the false prophet, those two guys and the vast majority of the world, have not turned their hearts toward uh, repentance. They've not turned their hearts toward God. We've seen that. In fact, they've raised a vast army. They said, for once and for all, we will defeat what they will call evil, Christianity and our God. This great army is assembled in this vast valley that looks like a funnel in the top, the northern part of Israel, and it goes down to the southern part, right to the city of Jerusalem. They are knocking on the city's gates. They're going to destroy it once and for all. So let's open up to Revelation 19. Now the scene switches back. Now the scene is in heaven once again. So I want you to leave that army in the field there. You got that picture? Leave that army in the field. They're ready to attack Jerusalem. Let's take a look at this. What John describes, what he hears first, and then what he sees. Let's look at verse 1. Listen carefully, and everybody take a big drink of their coffee. Amen? Our coffee, our church loves coffee. Our coffee loves our church. After this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. If you've stood in a big stadium 
uh, in, in the middle of a big crowd. It's one sensation, but if you've been just outside the stadium when there are thousands of people cheering inside, it is a different sound, isn't it? He's not in the crowd. He is hearing the crowd from afar. But listen, this isn't 50,000 or even 100,000 people cheering. It is billions, billions of billions. And I can't wait to hear this. By the way, uh, you will hear this. It will make the sound, uh, uh, that sound like a waterfall. It'll describe that in just a minute, uh, but not like uh, a small waterfall like Niagara Falls, if you've ever been there, or a massive waterfall like in Yellowstone. Large crowds have been described like hearing these massive waterfalls, and, and yet John can still make out what they are saying. To do that, this crowd has to be in such unison. It's amazing for a billion people to say the same thing and for someone outside the stadium to hear it. Now I'm told, I told you this in week one this year, uh, that your voice would be described in the Bible if you are a Christian. Here it is. This is your voice. I mean that as serious as a heart attack. This is your voice right here. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, your voice is being described in this verse. That should freak you out a little bit. Does it? This is, this is you. Like it's seeing you in the future. So what are, you, what are you saying? What does it mean? You are saying, write this down, hallelujah. Literally it means praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh. Now this is what this means. If you break this down, it's a, it's a Hebrew word that means hale, means praise the Lord, or Lord is Yah. It's just the first part of Yahweh. Praise the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name for God, for His people. They're saying, God, our Father, we praise You. So, okay, here's the plan for today. You ready? This is like the secret word. Whenever we read this word in Scripture today, I'll read it, then I'll point to you, and you say, hallelujah, but you say it louder. Don't, don't scream it. Just say it loud and strong, right? So let's practice. Hallelujah. hallelujah. That was really good. I thought we were going to have to do it twice. I, I love that. Well, let's do it twice. Hallelujah. That's great. Every time you see that, even if I mistake it, surprise me. Right? Even if I don't uh, point to you, you say it. Make sense? Okay, here we go. They are worshiping God, this vast multitude, this worship service in heaven, but not just any worship service. Now, what worship service is this? Or what is worship? Let's write this down. What is worship? It is ascribing to God who He is and what He has done. It is ascribing to God who He is and what He has done. Well, doesn't God know who He is? Well, yes. But we are saying, we are proclaiming to each other, to the world, who He is and what He has done. So listen to what the crowd says is worship. <clears throat> this is is what they think He has done and who He is. The crowd says, salvation, glory, and power belong to God because His judgments are true and righteous, because He has judged the notorious prostitute. Do you remember? She is the, representing all of false religion. 
He says, He has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and He has avenged the blood of His servants that was on her hands. She was guilty all through the ages, but especially during these seven years of killing the believers that had come to Christ during this seven-year time frame. This crowd is proclaiming what God has done. What we just studied in chapter 17, chapter 18. He has brought justice and they worship Him for that. Remember, He destroyed, He killed people and they worship Him. And some of you are horrified with that. Remember how we said last week that we long for justice. We want it. We want to see it carried out. God delivers justice and they worship Him for that because He brings perfect justice. Now remember, this is you if you are a believer. But it's also all the believers, the people of God, all the way back, check this out, to Adam. Adam is in this crowd. Eve is in this crowd. The prophets, the apostles are in this crowd. Those that have died during the tribulation are in this crowd. And they have been made, I love this, check this out, they've been made complete. They are in their resurrected body. Uh, they are no longer wrestling with sin. They are perfect in Christ Jesus. They are in the resurrected bodies. They have bodies. They have a consciousness. And apparently, they see what is going on in earth. And this picture of what's going on, because they're singing about it. They know what's happened on earth. This is a worship service, and this is a celebration, make no mistake, of God. A celebration of God. Just like you and I now, these saints have been longing for the day of judgment. God's people here love righteousness and they hate sin. Why is that? Well, here's why. Write this down. Righteousness honors God. Paul asked the question that they were asking of him in Romans. They said, why don't we just sin so grace may abound? And he said, may it not be. Right? And why? Because righteousness, our righteous acts, the righteous acts of the saints, following the commands of Jesus to love our neighbor, to follow him, honors God. But you go, Paul, aren't we forgiven of sin? Absolutely, by the grace of Jesus. Amen? But here's what you need to know. Even as a believer who is forgiven of sin, sin mocks God. It makes fun of him. Think of the worst type of making fun of someone. Someone who can't walk right, or is, you know, limping, or has special needs, and someone's right behind them, kind of making fun of them, and you're like, you're just angry, like you just want to punch someone, right? That's what sin does to God. It mocks Him. We talk about this all the time here, how we live in the already and the not yet. You know, we, we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And yet, and yet, we are not standing in heaven complete yet. We're wrestling with this world that is messed up. And quite frankly, the most messed up thing about this world is right here. Me. Me. Now, some of you said amen because you think you're talking about me. I, I, you know what I mean? 
We have been forgiven of Jesus, but we wrestle with sin in our lives. By the way, this is important. We hate sin, but we love the sinner. And and I've heard preachers recently go, no, no, no. If you hate the sin, that's like, no, no, no. We hate the sin. We tell them that it is sin because we love them. We hate the sin. But this is important. You don't hate other people's sin. You hate your sin. That's where you start. You see where that goes? Verse 3. A second time they said, Hallelujah! Hallelujah. Woo! I like that. Her smoke ascends forever and ever. What's it talking about? This is the great city of Babylon that we talked about last week. A physical city, a real city that has just been, boom, destroyed. Its smoke is rising up. But Babylon's destruction represents so much more. Represents the destruction of the seed of power, right? The All the way back to uh, Adam in Genesis chapter 3. The power of evil on earth has been dealt a lethal blow. But still around at this point. It's just been dealt a lethal blow. Little side note here. When it says the smoke ascends forever and ever. This is a little bit of a play on words. It doesn't actually mean the city will be smoking forever. How do we know that? Well the city will go away. The heaven and earth will disappear. We'll see that in a few weeks. But So we know that it stops. So it says it goes on and on. So how is that? Because that is the second thing that it's talking about. It's representing hell. Hell will always go on. Its smoke will always rise up. And you go, man, that's pretty dark, isn't it? Even for a loving God, isn't that pretty dark? No, I want you to understand. Because it always testifies of the righteousness of Jesus. Because God said, I am perfect, and sin tried to take you out. But I came in and destroyed sin. And that will always rise up. Think about this. We like to worship. We like to sing, don't we? Have you noticed how many modern worship songs you hear on the radio are about me? It's like, I call them uh, that navel-gazing music. You go, oh man, I am, I am all me. I am me right here. And, and there are great songs too. I, I, I want you to hear that. Um, and it's okay to talk about, sing about songs of what God has done for us. I'm not making fun of that uh, because that's saying who He is. But we should sing those songs. But here's what I want you to think about. Worship should be God-focused, not me-focused. We can sing about what He has done for us. Point to Him though. I just find it very fascinating. Me songs are so prevalent out there, uh, even outside Christian music. Now, our worship leaders do such an excellent job. Nicole, we love her. She does an excellent job uh, talking about breaking the power of sin, uh, singing about the blood, the redemption, victory over evil, the defeat of the evil one, That uh, uh, all of that. We sing about that stuff. That's, that's not so much in style these days, though, is it? Our team does a great job of that, but those songs should be. Look at this, verse 4. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You guys are good. This takes us back to the very throne room of God 
with God's throne in the middle, a vast sea of glass, billions and billions of people, you standing there, and around the throne closer are four living creatures, just crazy, Uh, they're giant, Uh, these are angelic creatures, that all they do, this is their total purpose, is to worship God, right there at the throne. But then outside that is 24 other thrones. These are probably, we're not sure, we think these are the church leaders, early church leaders. Probably the apostles make up half of those. I'm just guessing. And they are worshiping God in this scene again. I need to go off on a tangent here for just a moment. It's going to hurt your feelings. Um, And you go, Paul, what's new? And, And... It's going to hurt your feelings, maybe, but bear with me. You know, I I want you to know I love you. I I mean that. And and like a brother in Christ that would tell you the truth, even though it would hurt your feelings, I say this because I want you to say these things. I get you to say, uh, like I say, say amen and those things, or I like that, or even the idea with our word hallelujah today, to praise God vocally like that. I I ask you to lift your hands, to clap, to sing. and, And I want you to hear something. I don't say that to try to pump up the crowd, just so that you're pumped up and you go, yay, church. No, no, no. Here's the deal. I've caught a glimpse of something that I want you to catch a glimpse of. And it's a tiny glimpse of heaven. I've only caught it maybe a dozen or so times in my life. But it is so rich and so freeing and so perfect. Um, This is the picture. I've had this privilege of being in worship services in my life where the power of God was so thick that I just, I couldn't stand anymore. I just, I had to get down on my knees and then a couple of times, I'm not kidding you, I had to lay completely down like this. And and don't get the wrong idea. I'm not talking about some TV evangelist that like whacks you on the head and you go, oh man, I don't feel very good. And so you fall back, right? And I'm not talking about for the TV cameras where they go, let me slay everybody. I'm not talking about that junk because that's not real. I've been in those. You've seen those. It's all about TV. There's no great way to describe it, but let me try try for just a moment. You've seen this. What is that? It's a keyhole. This is the best way I can come up with this. Uh, Young people won't have seen these keyhole in an old door. You can just barely see the other room and just part of it. Uh, I like these services that I'm talking about are like we're getting just a little tiny keyhole amount of worship, the glory through this keyhole. And that little tiny amount through the keyhole is just wrecking us. It's just this wrecking us. Does that make sense? It's like we get a, a sense of what worship will be like on the other side. And I know I'm like trying to describe like something that's amazing and you've never experienced some of you. The power of God is so there. It's so awesome. People singing, raising their hands, falling to their knees to pour out their heart to God. They didn't care about themselves, what they look like, what they're singing. Now, don't get the wrong picture. I'm not talking about pandemonium. I'm not. I'm not talking about a guy having a hissy fit on the ground, you know, like it's all about you. It, it, worship, every time worship's mentioned in the Bible, it's always organized. It's always orderly. It is always this great thing, but baby, it's also loud. Every time it's described, it is loud. Um, 
you hear me say this worship is not about you, but somehow, somehow you got the message that it was about you. And I'm so sorry for that because that was just wrong teaching. And if I've taught that, I'm so sorry. You say, Paul, well, how do you know that I'm not worshiping the right way? And here's the reason, because you stand like this during worship. You kind of look around. Some of you sing, and some of you move your mouth like, I'll just do the... And I was going to say I'm not making fun of you, but that's exactly what I'm doing. I... You don't pour your heart out to God. Look, I'm saying this because I like love you. Like you're missing out on something that is so amazing. You're, you're going to get to heaven. You're going, this is amazing. Why don't we do this on earth? And I'm going, <laughs> sing, lift your hands. And you go, is this, like, is this like God lifts my hands? I go, I have no power. No, no. No, it's like, just like I lift my voice, I lift my hands just as a symbol of saying, God, I like love you. Like a little kid would to their parents, go pick me up. You see what I mean? Lift your voice. And you go, Paul, you don't want me to lift your, you know, my voice. I do, I promise. When, when the, the band claps, clap. Sometimes it's falling to your knees. Now, quite, quite frankly, most of you do much better job at worshiping at sports games than you do worshiping Jesus. You, you do, because you're like, ah! I go, you know what I mean? I'm so sorry to hurt your feelings. I really am. But the way to worship God is to let Him know how great He is for who He is and what He has done. I, I, I could just, if I could encourage you, like, I, I really want this to be an encouragement. There is such a sweetness, a connection that you could have with God, with all of us, if you would simply forget about who you are and what you look like to everyone else. Raise your hands as a physical act of worship and sing your heart out, even if you don't know the tune and you sound like a frog. Can I say it's one of the reasons I ask you to sit closer to the front, not to spread out all back. I, I hate that because it says to me, I'll worship God from here. And if you're still in the back row, I don't mean to hurt your feelings. But it reminds me of like the guys in English class in high school that just didn't want to be there. They're just, I'm just here because my mom makes me go to English. Like somehow that's going to benefit me. I mean, that's how many of you treat worship. Good, the, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and you stand there like this, waiting for this to get over, because I want to get the preaching. That's where the real thing is. Baby, you're missing it. All right, sorry to preach. Back to verse 5. A voice booms above all the rest of the crowd worshiping. Look what it says. A voice came from the throne, this is God, saying, Praise our God, all His servants, and the ones who fear Him, both small and great. Now, we've already established this is the Son saying this. Notice it's a command to God's people and the angels and all heavenly hosts. We thought it was loud before, but baby, it just got ear-splitting loud. A new uh, important command is coming. This is a new thing, right? Here it is, verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude. You go, John, you said that. No, he's got to explain it again because it's so big. It is so big. Like the sound of cascading waters. 
and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying hallelujah because, oh, oh man, you guys did it. Woo! We, we, we just should end the service here. But we won't. Because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. I love this. This, this sound at first is just one more the same, it seems like. But something big is about to happen. Look at this. Verse 7, let us be glad, rejoice, and give Him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has prepared herself. Now, we could preach a series right here just on this verse. You know how I say go deep to grow deep? Talking about the Word of God, we go deep in it to grow deep as believers. This thing is so deep, you can't ever get to the bottom and I know this is craziness don't let me confuse you here think of this wedding as an analogy for right now it will help us in this uh, uh, for this next part but this might be confusing um, it's more than imagery you need to understand that it is a reality in heaven uh, and we don't know what that means and quite frankly I'm saying this serious 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 we won't get to the bottom of this for all eternity what this means but we will examine it and it will be a blessedness for us it's called the marriage of the lamb right the marriage of the lamb write this down the lamb is Christ Jesus we looked at this early on. The lamb who, as if he had been slain, his throat had been cut. The lamb we studied way back in volume two. This was the slain from the foundation of the world. That's Jesus Christ. It was only Jesus that was worthy to break the seals of the scroll. He was worthy because although he was fully God, he humbled himself, became a physical man born of a virgin Mary in a little tiny place called Bethlehem. He lived 30 years 33 years, he was killed, he was innocent, and but he didn't stay dead. He was raised back to life on the third day. Amen? Yes. He died as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross and was raised back to life on that third day, proving that he was God. You go, why does that prove he's God? Because only God has the power to create life. So who is the bride here? Here it is. The bride is the church. This be you. This be you. I told you I didn't pay attention in English. As on the back row. This idea, the picture of God's people being reunited with God through the redemption of Jesus on the cross is all through the Old and New Testament. Look at Isaiah 54. The prophet says, Indeed, your husband is your maker, his name is the Lord of armies. He's talking about Jesus. Now you've got to get, this is written 750 years before Jesus is born. That should blow your mind. His name is the Lord of armies, another name for Jesus. The Holy One of Israel, another name of Jesus, is your Redeemer. Another name for Jesus. He is called the God of the whole earth. Whoo! How is this one from, or how about this one from John the Baptist? You remember him? Comes right before, comes right before Jesus. And uh, he is asked one day, he said, uh, the people say, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ that we've been expecting? Uh, he says, no, no way. He says this in John 3, 29. He says, he who has the bride is the, is the groom, but the groom's, he who has the bride is the groom. Makes sense. 
But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. Oh, this is cool. John is the groom. By the way, he is at this marriage celebration standing along with you. Is that, it just blows my mind to think about that too. Then look at these words from Jesus during his earthly ministry. He's, he's asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples? And here's his answer. He says, Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them. Can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and they will fast on that day. What is Jesus talking about? Well, he's, he's about to be taken away from them, right? To be crucified, put in a tomb. The new age will be the begin uh, after he's gone back up into heaven after his resurrection. What are they? We are waiting for his return. Let me clue you in on something that Jews hearing this would understand. But our Gentile ears, unless you're Jewish and understand this, you may not get. A Hebrew wedding has three parts. Write this down. Be number one, it begins with the betrothal. A betrothal usually happened when the little boy and the little girl were very young. Very young. And this is going to mess you up. Sometimes before they were born. And you go, how's that uh, possible? And they'd say, well, uh, Mary just had this little boy. And I know Susan is pregnant. Uh, so if she has a girl, let's go ahead and betroth them. Okay, here's your camel. Done, right? Right? This is it. And so this little boy and this little girl would... <laughs> just kidding, they didn't have camels. Uh, that They would grow up knowing that they were betrothed to each other. They weren't allowed to date anybody else. They weren't, you know, that, that, and by the way, I, I like the system. Just as a daddy, just as a daddy, I'm just saying. When the right time came, the groom would leave and go and prepare the for the home for the new family. He built onto uh, the dad's existing home. No one knew when he would return. It depended on when he was ready. It would be a surprise. Now, when the groom was ready to take his bride to the new home he had built, there was a party that would last for at least a week, but sometimes weeks. It's hard to picture this, but this is where the biggest, these were the biggest events in village life. You remember when Jesus turned the water into wine in Cana? This is the part that he's at. This, the reason they ran, ran out of wine is they've been drinking it for a week. They're like, woo, party on, right? This was the next big part. The, uh, the week-long celebration ended with this. The, pre the bride's presentation. She is dressed in white. She has made herself beautiful. She appears before the groom. By the way, this is why in the Christian wedding, we don't like to have the groom see the bride because it's mimicking this. It is the presentation of the bride. I always say when I'm marrying somebody, uh, here is the groom standing next to me and all eyes are on the bride when she comes in. She's beautiful coming down the aisle. I could do jumping jacks and no one would know except the bride. And sometimes I do. I like make funny faces and do like that. Brides love that stuff. They do. I'm just kidding. They don't like that stuff at all. Number three. The ceremony, exchanging of vows. This is the last part. Here's what I, I want you to see. Watch very close. This is going to mess you up. 
This is going to mess you up bad on your belief. The church was betrothed to Christ by his sovereign choice in eternity past. The Apostle Paul tells us, Ephesians 1, 4. For he chose us in him. This is Jesus choosing us in him, okay? Before the foundation of the world. How is that possible? Sovereignty. Before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in Him, in love before Him. Check this out. Check this out. Before you were born, Christ Jesus chose you to be His own. And some of you are struggling with this. You go, no, no. No, I chose Jesus. Sure you did. You made a decision to follow Christ. I love that. Yeah, you chose. He just chose you like long before. All true Christians alive on the earth and those who have died in Christ for more than 2,000 years will be presented to Jesus, the groom, at the rapture. When were they betrothed? Before you were born. Does that mess you up? John 14, 1 through 3 says this, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus says, believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If, I, if not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. Why? Because it's the marriage to the church. He says, I'm going away to build our house. If I go away and... Let's see. I've told you, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go and away and prepare a place for you, I will come again. To take you to myself, take you to myself, so that where I am, you may also be. That right there is the rapture. People go, hey, Paul, where's the rapture in scripture? Right there. This is the rapture of the church, the presentation in the Hebrew wedding. So when is the ceremony that will end the wedding? Here it is, baby. The crowd is cheering. Here it is. This is the final supper, a meal that will signify the end of the ceremony. You ready? Here it is. The wedding feast is a symbol, symbolic picture of the millennial kingdom. Millennial meaning a thousand years. Christ will rule on earth, this one, for a thousand years along with you, his new bride. The word bride is the church, but it will ultimately include all the redeemed people all the way back to Adam and Eve. It will be all of those. Back to Revelation 19, verse 7, for just a moment, and then we'll go on to verse 8. Uh, remember, God is instructing this massive crowd in heaven, billions of billions uh, of the redeemed. He says, let us be glad. Rejoice and give Him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come. Those are big words. And His bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. This is the picture of the bride. Christians living their life on earth, being the hands and feet of Jesus, doing the righteous acts of the saints. Now remember, we are justified, we are made right with God through the blood of Jesus. Amen? He chooses us. It is all a work of God. 
We simply respond. We are made right with God through justification. But it is our sanctification that many of us get confused. It is that daily walk with God going, God, it's hard. This is hard. And it is hard. It is the Holy Spirit working in us. It is still our salvation. But God is working along with us where it was justification, just God. Now it is us and God working together. Now comes glorification. Amen? That's what the rapture is. We will be made complete. We will be made right in Christ Jesus. We will be out of these sinful bodies and into our new bodies. Look at verse 9. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Apparently this angel talking to John is so glorious, he just falls down and starts worshiping right there. But John, he's rebuked, boom, instantly. He says, get up, don't do that. Don't miss this part. Look back at verse 9 for just a moment again. Then he said to me, Right blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. I want you to see this. These are the chosen. The Bible calls them the elect. Brothers and sisters, this is you if you are in Christ Jesus. What we have just witnessed here is a glimpse through the keyhole into the greatest celebration of all time. The marriage of the Lamb to His bride, the church. But what about the vast army that we left at the first? The Antichrist, the false prophet, and millions, the beast army we've ever seen about to destroy Jerusalem and Israel. Remember, they are lined up to destroy. Well, John tells us this in verse 11 about another army that will face them. The scene changes in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, new scene. And there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were with him were in heaven followed. <clears throat> Let me read that again. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. This is you. What a picture. By the way, this is Jesus leading uh, his armies. Notice the multiple armies that are coming, a plural of that. Jesus is, uh, I'm sorry, John is describing something and you're tempted, you're tempted to think, oh, this is another thing. Let's think, what are these images? No, 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 listen to me. He's describing reality now. This is real. Jesus on his white horse. Sure, things mean things in this picture, but this is reality. He's coming back. Jesus is coming back. The return of the King. He's about to take earth back from Satan. And for those of us in Christ Jesus, we are going to be with Him. You ready to study this? Well, you'll have to come next week.
I can't wait. I love doing that to you. I love you, but I love doing that. <laughs> Let me leave you with a parable that Jesus told uh, that I think will hit home. Um, dads, you read this later uh, to your families. It's Matthew chapter 22. It's on the bottom of your notes. Just kind of circle that there. Just pick this up, verse 1 through 14. Uh, picture this story in your head. I like to tell things like this if you're new every once in a while. Just kind of turn that little flat screen on your, your head. Picture this, what it looks like. This is a parable, a story to help you go deeper. Jesus is telling this story. He, he, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who great, gave a great wedding banquet, a feast for his son who was getting married. His son... He sent his servants to bring those who he had already invited. He says, go out and gather everybody that has been invited to the big celebration. So the servants go out, and as they go out to get the people that are invited, the people that are invited don't want to come. They make excuses. They go, I don't want to come. I've got to do this or that. So the king says, I, I, I want you to tell them that they have been invited, and I have prepared a great feast. I've killed oxen and cattle galore. There's, there's steaks. Tell them there's steaks. Everything is ready for the wedding celebration. He said, tell them to come. Is it time to come and celebrate a feast for the king's son, for his wedding and his bride? So the servants Take this message out. They go to the invited. They knock on doors. They ask. People still treat them horribly. They say, no, I'm busy. Most simply ignore the, two, the servants that go out and go on their way. But a few of those invited said, let's, let's torture and kill these servants. And they do. Where it gets back to the king. The king is furious. How would you... Why would you kill my servants bringing you? So this time he doesn't send out the army. I'm sorry, the servants. He sends out the army. The king sends his army ready for war. The army kills all of those who had been invited. And he burns their city. See if you can connect that one. He burns their city. The king said to his other servants, he said, now you go out. The banquet is ready, but those who were invited, they were not worthy. So I want you to go outside the city this time where the roads actually exit the city. And I want you to bring everyone you can find. Bring the good and bring the evil. Everyone you can find. Bring the pretty and bring the ugly. Bring them all. So those servants went out onto the roads and gathered up everyone they found. Come to the wedding of the king. The poor. The wedding banquet was filled to capacity. This great party. The king is excited as he walks through the wedding feast and he sees it all. But there, he comes to one man who is not wearing wedding clothes. He said, how did you get in here not wearing wedding clothes? The man was just simply speechless. He didn't, he's never even seen a king, much less talked to one. The king told the attendants, tie him up, hand and foot, throw him out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. And you might be thinking, that's not very fair, Jesus. 
Why tell this story? That's not fair. The king said to his servants, invite everyone. This guy just didn't come with the right clothes on. Why are you throwing him out? The clue is in the clothes that the man's wearing. Watch close. Remember the servants had brought all the people into the castle for the wedding celebration. No one was prepared. No one had wedding clothes on when they were called. But now this guy is the only one who doesn't have wedding clothes on. Here's what that means. Get this down. Apparently all the guests going to the wedding, invited to the wedding, have been offered new clothes. Wedding clothes for the big celebration. But this guy had apparently rejected the offer of the new clothes of the king. Here's what I want you to realize. The man's rejection of the king's offer of new clothes was even a greater insult than those who had simply refused to come to the wedding. The man wore the wrong clothes, committed a rudeness and insolence in the very presence of the king. The image here shows us a picture of those who identify themselves with the kingdom on the outside. They say, I'm a Christian. I'm part of the church. But really, they refuse the garment of righteousness offered through Christ Jesus. Now, don't let me lose you. These people seek to establish their own righteousness. I've got fine clothes. I'll come the way I am. I'm a good enough person. How dare you say I'm not good enough on my own? They refuse the better wedding clothes. And because of that, they are guilty of a horrible sin against Christ Jesus. If you and I are waiting for this very real wedding celebration, we're standing in the line waiting to get into the feast. Bro, you can't fake this one you might have fooled us but you will be found out take off the garments of sin repent put on the wedding clothes put on the righteousness of Christ Jesus put on him dying for you place your faith in him as the savior will you do that let's pray God, we depend on you for our salvation. We say, God, would you make us into the righteous people of God you are calling us to be. God, help us to not stay where we are. As a church, make us beautiful. Teach us how to do the righteous acts. Adorn us to be this beautiful picture of the church, the bride, your bride that will be presented to you, Jesus. As you continue to pray with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I, I would just be remiss without telling you how to take off the old and put on the new. Listen, if this, if this is making sense to you that Jesus is the Son of God, you didn't figure that out on your own. That realization came because the Holy Spirit has woken you up from the dead. So this is what you do. You simply say, I believe. You say it with your mouth, I believe, Jesus, you are the Son of God. And I, I believe, God, that you raised Jesus from the dead. 
And you say this, in the middle, the core of who you are, you are my king and I depend on you alone, not on my righteousness, not on the old way I live, but I depend on you, Jesus. That's what you say. Can you say that to God right now? Can you say, God, forgive me for not believing Jesus to be the Savior of the universe, the King of kings. What that is, is repentance. You are repenting of not knowing and not honoring Jesus. And listen to me, your sins are forgiven. Past, present, future. How can I forgive future sins? This is how, this is how. Because Christ was slain before the foundation of the earth. And you were chosen before the foundation of the earth. You are putting on the righteousness of God. You are in Christ Jesus. So when God looks at you, He no longer sees your deeds. He sees the deeds of Jesus. The 33 years of Jesus' righteous life on earth. He was a literal man, literally God, literally man. He lived the perfect life. He can represent us. He paid for our sins. Accept that. Put on Jesus at the core of who you are. Believe on Him. Picture that. That story Jesus told, that parable. Can you picture everyone seated in white robes, beautiful at this wedding ceremony, and one guy just kind of in rags, smells horrible. The guy thinks he's wearing these beautiful clothes, but he's not. Could this be you? Have you faked your religion so long that even you think you're a Christian? May it never be. Accept the gospel. Accept what Christ has done for you. This thing is real. It is real. You have got to get ready. You can't fake this any longer. Repent. Turn your heart to God. End your prayer like this. God, be my king. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for washing away the old me. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen.